There's something so special about this episode in its completeness. Do not stop listening before the end of the conversation. When you get to bio speaking held by a good stretch of producer Nick Jana's music, it's all so worthwhile. Hey everybody, it's Ned. I'm here. I'm your host again, maybe for the first time. If you're listening for the first time, big breath. (sighs) Oh man. (laughs) Big breath. Welcome. Let's just arrive here. Wherever you are, we are now together. I do believe in that kind of somehow sci-fi magical, mystical way of of being together that here where I am, right in front of a microphone with the rain coming down outside yet again, like it has lots here in California in the Bay Area. I'm somehow just pushing my edge of a world up against yours. So we get to be in a room together. And that feels nice to acknowledge somehow, like something's occurring here beyond a podcast. And this is a podcast. This is your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. You're going to die, the podcast. But I like to think with my eyes closed as I speak into this microphone that we are together, actually, you and I. And a guest that I just kind of want to get to introducing. I'm feeling so happy to share this conversation with you. And instead of trying to explain why, I'm going to introduce the guest appropriately and let you experience the conversation like you need it. Instead of me telling you why it matters and should matter to you, geez, why do I try to do that so often? (laughs) Why am I inclined to do that? It's because I feel a lot about how much it matters to me, but I don't want to undercut the possibilities for you what it means for you by being dramatic about how much it means to me all the time, even though I just can't even help it. I've already done it. It's too late. So let me just get get into the, the story of how this conversation came to be. It started during the pandemic. In a way, it, it is because of the pandemic that this guest is is here with me in this conversation, in this episode. Our creative director, Chelsea Coleman, sent me a piece that he wrote called I Coronavirus, Mother Monster Activist. That is another thing I won't try to explain to you. I will just put a link to it in the show notes. And please, if you find the time and compulsion, make sure to read it. I read that article like I needed it, like I couldn't have imagined needing it. Cracked my head open reading those words. And I'll leave it at that. Jump to quite a bit further into the pandemic, we signed up for this many, many week course called We Will Dance with Mountains. It was happening like internationally. So we would get up early, early, early Sundays and join these many hour, three hour sessions. There were a lot of breakout groups, but there was a lot of bio, Akamalafe and his community of supporters and a lot of teachers, 
other healers, musicians, Adrian Marie Brown, Prentice Hemphill, Joanna Macy, lots of incredible people. Such an incredibly fruitful, valuable, moving time, even when it was just dancing together with people, hundreds and hundreds of people internationally dancing on Zoom together. Even that was medicine. And these things changed me. They helped me. They gave me what I knew I needed. They gave me things I didn't know I needed. And bio really is in the heart of all of it, of course. I am so honored to get to share a conversation with bio. And the way I often frame these quote-unquote interviews, conversations, is I said this to bio. I said, we could die in two hours. So how could this conversation matter to us both? Like it's not a podcast, like it's not something we're creating content to give to the world. What are we going to share that matters to each of us? And that is what happened here. And that's what you get to listen to. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Bio, for saying yes to this. What a sweet pleasure to have this conversation for me. Just say it selfishly like I needed and now get to share it with, with all our listeners. Bio Akamalafe, rooted with the Yoruba people in a more than human world, is the father to Alethea and Kea, the grateful life partner to EJ, son and brother, a widely celebrated international speaker, post-humanist thinker, poet, teacher, public intellectual, essayist and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bayo Kamalafe is the founder of the Emergence Network and host of the online post-activist course, We Will Dance with Mountains. He currently lectures at Pacifica Graduate Institute, California, and University of Vermont, Burlington, Vermont. He sits on the board of many organizations, including Science and Non-Duality and Local Futures. In July 2022, Dr. Okamalafe was appointed the inaugural Global Senior Fellow of University of California's Berkeley Othering and Belonging Institute. He has also been appointed Senior Fellow for the new institute in Hamburg, Germany. It is my great pleasure to share this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Bio Akamalafe. Well, that's a heavy one. My father, I can see his smile and his, his, uh, I was thinking about him today, just the way that he, um, loved us and the way he played with us. Uh, I I often call him my best friend. I mean, there's a, in African families there, that isn't exactly true, it, right? It's, there is a different, there is a dynamic that exists between a father and a son that is palpably that is palpable. Um, in African contexts, I think. But it did seem true 
in more ways than one when I called him my best friend because he was at the center of my universe. I looked up to him. I wanted to be him. He was a diplomat, a brilliant diplomat, polyglot, and wonderful father. I don't still know how he died. I still. There's a lot of mystery around that. He wasn't, he, this, this, the official story is that he got up in the morning, complained of some heart pains, and then um, refused to be driven because he was, uh, like I said, a diplomat, a high-ranking diplomat, and he refused to be driven and drove himself to the doctor. This was in Kinshasa, then called Zaire, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was on the bed while he was being examined that it is said he had a heart attack, which is strange and because he was, he was very, very young. I mean, 50-ish, not even, not even, um, into his fifties and he died. And, and, um, yeah, it was, forgive the hesitate, the hesitancy of my words. Mm. There, there, there's a lot of space between them because there's a lot coming through that words mm -hmm. are, words cannot be impervious to, and words cannot, and cannot be reducible to my words. So, Mm -hmm. I hope that communicates as well, that mm -hmm. he was deeply loved and I loved him and I still do. And his name lives in my chest and in my son's, and in my son's name. My son is named after him. Mm. And, well, he died and, and we buried him and he refused to be buried. He lives in my work. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and, in my thoughts, <laughs> yeah. and he haunts he's the uh, he's the uh, in many cases the original instigation of my public intellectual life yes mm -hmm. wow um, I expected it to be significant and I wondered about that because I guess one of the questions hanging with with me thank you for that and what's his name? Ignatius Abayomi, or just Abayomi, or Yomi, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. his wife, my mom, calls called him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've wondered a lot about how you're in the world, especially with your work and your writing and your academia and your teaching and, and wondered how it was connected connect, how it is connected to him and how he's present in that. Um, I think before that we get to that question. Well, actually I do kind of want to maybe stay there and, and I do appreciate the like space and you acknowledging the space between the words. And, and so then also want to say, want to say and offer the option that because there is that maybe even more than the words, maybe there's not more to add in that direction, but is there, is there more to say about how he is present and, and maybe even somehow his life and death is responsible for who you are and what you do. 
Someone told me recently that my father is proud of me. I, I won't say more about that context. It was awkward, bizarre, but also calming in a way that doesn't invite further scrutiny, but said, your father is proud of you. And I was, um, and I was really moved to tears hearing that. In many ways, he is, as I said earlier, the uh, first ignition, the igniting force that drove me in the directions that I've come to find myself. He, um, he said and did lots of things that live on through me, but his death especially drove me to question the things that I had taken for granted, the worlds, the fates, the creeds, the ideas. And it kind of shocked me into waking up to find myself like as Neil in the matrix did to find himself in the matrix. It was like a pill of some sort. I'm like, Oh, I am embodied in certain ways. And this body yeah. dies and this body is limited you know, structurally and in fragile ways limited. And I often describe myself as screaming at the pearly gates, you know, wanting an answer from the God that I presumed in my Christian upbringing had answers to all tragedies. Of course, that, that is where my adventure begins in many ways. From that, from the pearly gates, turning away from the pearly gates, and it's idealized transcendence back to a world of comings and goings and dyings and livings. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Oh my goodness. I both relate. My mother died when I was 26 and it did feel like taking that pill. Mm -hmm. And I also had someone say that to me, your mom is proud of you. And it, and all the words you of course really? described it as is, is what I felt. And it, it mattered so much to me and also brought me to tears that I've been paying attention to if I could say it to someone else mm. and definitely have not often, I would say maybe once or twice with certain loved ones, have I felt like it was really a message I was responsible to to offer, but I, I'm just relating to that, that it was awkward. And also I did, you know, burst into tears. Mm. Yeah. It's not, it's not fair bio, but I, I would have, if someone had said, you know, and you were 15 years old, is that correct? When your father died? Yeah. I think it's not fair to assume that I probably, and I would have, I think before I'd, I'd read your, your essay, um, that bio, his father died. And then by, you know, with support from his family or his grandparents or his mom or his community, he very immediately was in a continuing relationship with that, that, you know, ancestor now. Right. And, but then reading your, reading your essay, these wilds beyond our fences, you tell the story of, of, of essentially a version of like the wall between you two. And, and part of that essay is you talking about when that wall maybe got brought down. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. And that might start with what you just shared, which is like 
part of it sounds like what occurred for you from reading that and even listening to you now is that there was, it was separation, you know, between you two mm-hmm, for a while mm-hmm. and that it, I'll, I'll let you maybe yeah, see where you want to, what you <laughs> it's, it's that the ontology that I grew up in and that I took for granted presumed that death was, um, an interruption of some kind that to die is there's something horrifying about this that there is or there was some kind of original plan that was interrupted with angelic irreverence and and that with this irreverence came this this evil unspeakably primal evil excrescence that we rudely call death and that the thing to do is to vanquish death at the end of history, right? This was the narrative that I had in my head. And this is why I screamed at the gates of heaven. You know, I was performing this separation that I presumed existed between me and my father, right? And so I took on an extra religious, if you might think of it as an extra religious, like I sprinkled a lot of salt on my religious life because I believed that the only way to breach the wall to exceed the separation was to be good so that I too could make it to the other side. So I had to be good. I had to, yes. So I kept on exploring. How That would be a, a, you're, you're at that age. I think you're saying this, but that would be your, that's your route back to your dad. Yes. It was my way back to my dad. And I was, um, at 15, I, I didn't know parties or social life. I was, you, you know, Bruce Wayne's entire, you know, gig is to find his way back to his parents. It's an animist ritual. I mean, he puts on this bat-like costume, you know, and becomes more than Bruce. And it's his way of trying to stay meet the monsters of that moment, right? <laughs> um, in, in many ways, I also put on a costume. It wasn't as fancy as Batman's, but, but, I, but I read in the night and I grew distant from my own sisters and I read Finnis Dake and I burnt Bibles and I repudiated socialities and I just wanted to find the right alchemy to burst through this disastrous terrain that I co- that we call life and to find my way up there in some ways. Um, thankfully, I was disrupted in my path and something transversal broke through and helped me see, and I think I describe it in the book as, as this coming to see that my dad's soul wasn't in a heaven somewhere, that death wasn't this kind of Einstein Rosen bridge, a wormhole to a different dimension. It was an invitation to disrupt my posture here and now, to be present here and now, that here and now is thicker than any Christocentric imagination might make it out to be. So I started to look around and started to sense him with me. Did that convert into 
easily communicable rituals that I might articulate for others to hear? I don't think so. But in naming my son, my mother naming my son after my dad, and in meeting the worlds that I've met, and in writing that book, I believe I'm constantly communicating with him. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in touch with him. I'm not out of touch. I don't have to breach a Trumpian wall to find him. I am, I'm in touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, thank you for that. In the essay, you talk about, you share this story that I might be like representative of the return, but potently, and it is you describing taking that walk because your daughter wants to go to the water. She wants to go to the pool. And, and then instead of the pool, it's the lake that she calls the pool. Mm -hmm. And, and what I, what I, what I notice about it and why I think it may be correct me if I'm wrong is representative of how you return is the opening and the letting go the, and through your own child, of course, the grandchild of your father, um, the, the saying yes to everything she asked mm-hmm. you to do mm-hmm. without question. And that somehow in that moment is a version of that wall starting to come down or coming down. And I'm wondering if you could more than just saying, you know, we could say like, go read the essay and I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. But I'm also wondering now looking back, like we are new individuals, new grieving children with our parents, maybe constantly a new version of that. How does, how does that story, how do you relate to that story now? Or is there a new way to tell it? Or is there a new thing to connect it to, um, to represent that, like the wall coming down? I like the idea of thinking, you're helping me do this as well, brother, in real time. I like the idea of thinking of those moments with my daughter as a wall coming down moment. And, and, um, especially in the ways in that story, in that moment, when she told me to shush, when she, when she told me to keep quiet. I'm la- I want people to hear me laughing, but I'm <laughs> muting myself because I don't want my echo getting into your audio. I want them to hear you very clearly, but I'm just laughing, everybody, because I just, yeah. <laughs> I love the shush. It's like echoes of the world. You know, you not wanted to bring in echoes. And I'm thinking about the echoes of that moment. It's, it's, she she just like keep just shut up already and listen right just listen to to the stuff around you and and it wasn't violent it was very maternal it was very very ancient the way she said shh and and the liveliness of the world around me and of the world around me just kind of reinforced the idea that, you know, <laughs> there, there isn't an afterlife that is not already in the middle, right? The afterlife is here. It's not after per se. It's not a post life. It is life keener. It is, it is a different, iterate. it's a, it's a, it's a different landscape, a palimpsest of worlds that are laid upon each other. Right. And you, and I think my children still do that. And maybe I hear my dad softly when they do that. It's like death doesn't become as terrifying. Oh my gosh. 
I mean, I just the idea that I would say my kids or, or maybe commonly people would say my kids make death terrifying more than ever. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. then suddenly you've got that new relationship. Your heart is outside of you. Yeah. Uh, the fear of somehow something happening or the inevitability of what will, um, has would have most people say the opposite of that. And I don't need you to explain more. I'm just glad anyone would say and put it that way mm. that somehow death wouldn't be terrifying if I just would quiet down and pay attention to my kids yeah. more often. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It seems we live through and in them that even absence is beautifully present in ways that an embodied figure might not e immediately capture for us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the, it seems for me, I, I don't often have a trajectory of where I want to go in a conversation. I'm grateful for that. Okay, good. Cause the next, and it feels nice to connect your writing for obvious reasons. And, and I will share so many of these words in our show notes, but the next like obvious stop for me, or at least next place to go is, is connected to your piece. Grieving is how flowers bloom. Mm. And I think maybe it could give you a chance to talk about what the grieving process maybe was more for you or has been or is now, but maybe more importantly, I mean, I'm thinking things like how grief, these are, I'm quoting, uh, you'll know, mm -hmm. but so people know I'm quoting you. Grief is generative. Grief is a public event, not a private affair. These are the lines that really kind of are hanging with me, but I think maybe more than anything that might be a fitting next stop is you say Grief is not a response to loss. It is a response to excess, how things bleed into each other. Mm. Um, so again, the opportunity maybe here is like, what is what was grieving for you at that age? Although I feel like you did describe it. And maybe what is grieving for you now and how does it connect to that like flower bloom? Mm. There's a lot of theoretical scaffolding that might be helpful here. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to get that much into it except to say that the trajectories that my father's death thrust me into the cartographical project seems to has, it seems to have been a, this longing for, um, other places of power, right? It almost feels like my own vendetta, <laughs> Batman-like vendetta, isn't to rid Gotham of, just, of injustice. It's to rid the pearly gates, the heavens promised to me of its claims to exclusivity, right? I detest that that's an arrival point. I detest that everywhere is not a pearly gate Right, it, it's it's um, so that death becomes something else. It doesn't become this passenger concept or this vehicle to the real. It's just an inflection in the already available. Right, it's it's an ex, it's a, it's spillage. It's excess. Um, it's refusal. It's fugitivity. 
It's exile. Um, so grieving my father is, has metamorphosed into this, this project to tell new stories, right? To, to invite a different politics. And I think, brother, most especially to hold my son. I want to hold my children in lovingly, but there's something about holding my son, who's named after my father, that is especially gripping to me and especially potent. It's not just that my son is my son, it's that my son is also autistic. And his autism, his autism, language fails me. It's not his, as if he, you, you own a television set or a cup of water. It's not his. It's a field's intensity. But for the sake of our conversation, I name it that. His autism is, has challenged me and my fatherhood through and through and has you know, it's a blank check for grief for me, right? I got to play with my father all the time. The ways that the relational space between me and my son has emerged or is emerging has challenged my images of love and fatherhood. It's constantly pushing me to the edge of what I thought I could be or could not be and has challenged, it, it's almost like I'm calling on my dad to help, and I've actually done that many times, that I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to relate here, and I'm not sure where to go with this, and I'm failing horribly. And this opens up this site of grieving as lamentation, as prayer, which is only possible within a cosmology of humility, where humility is the porosity of our edges. I'm calling on my dad as a, as a logic that exceeds my own capacities. I'm calling on my father in order to say that my fatherhood is indebted to yours and to the, your father and to the father of your father's father and all the way down, and I need help, and I cannot do this on my own. And this is what I mean when I say grieving is more than loss. Grieving is excess, or, or loss is excess. Like, the crack isn't a site of deficiencies. The crack is a site of generosity and immense plenitude and it can become overwhelming. My son is the embodiment of grief as a crack because he has constantly um, stood in front of me as an obstacle, an impediment to my own straight and narrow highway about what fatherhood is or about what I'm going to do next. He constantly upends all these algorithms and says, now, nah, this, this is not what you're going to do. You're not going to do that. You're not going to have your way. You're not going to even tell me what to do. You know, I refuse that. 
So there is an activism at work here, brother, and I'm I'm learning it through this threefold relationship between my father who has not left and my father and my son who is still yet to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, I just, I'm <laughs> just hearing you describe your son, kind of, kind of checking you, you, I like crack and I love you brought in naturally obstacle, but this is a quote from, from when you meet an obstacle and I'm reading these, not for you, but as a, as a like touchstone, (laughs) um, you say an obstacle, this is what I feel like you just led us to. And it's my next thing here, bio. It's the next thing I wanted to go to, which is an obstacle is the richest, thickest, densest place in the universe. This is so because it is where things stop and open or often and often die. And I feel like that was the version of what you share and what, what you describe with your son coming into the world as the crack, as the, you know, I'm, I, you, 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 I don't know. There's part of me that like, I don't want to think of your son as an obstacle, but there's a way I think you're taking that word and, and giving it to us as like medicine. It's not like obstacle is not a bad thing. I think that's the point of this writing. It's a point of what you're saying, you know? I think in our culture, at least for me, thinking of obstacles, we're just very naturally inclined to think, well, what do I got to do to get through it? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) like, give me some dynamite. Let me blast through this, this impediment. But Wendell Berry says, uh, I believe it's Wendell Berry. Yeah. That, um, the impediment is where, um, the river sings or something like that. Right. It's, it's, it's at the place of the obstacle that things produce music. And, and so obstacles, modernity is obviously, well, not obviously, but at least in one iteration of this speculative state of being that we rudely call modernity. Modernity is, is the flattening of obstacles, right? It's, and it's, it's probably truest for Americans, right? With a passport, an American passport, you can go anywhere in the world. You can, you can do anything, doors open. Um, with my passport, not too much. You're kind of, in fact, there was a ritual on Twitter recently of Nigerians tearing their passports, not only, be, not only because it's useless, because we're installing regimes of power that are deplorable to say the least. So there, yes, I think we need to stop, you know, we need a pause and that is only brought into effect by the transversal visitation of something that exceeds us. Maybe death is redeeming in the way that it stops us from continuing. I just want to take a quick moment to thank all you Apple podcast listeners out there who 
rated and reviewed our show recently and helped us reach our goal of 200 ratings and reviews. Thank you so much. And I want to echo some sentiments I shared on our Instagram feed in the stories to encourage people to do this, to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. I said, this feels both so meaningless and significant at the same time, which I believe reflects kind of the heart of what we do with You're Going to Die. It is this space to let the meaning fall away and maybe be freed and let go and simultaneously act urgently. Like we only have so much time to do what matters now. And I want to say that you all out there are doing a version of that in relationship with this podcast. We are a team of people holding both those things at the same time. There's a way that I believe in this blink of an eye, what you do when you rate and review our podcast is give us a chance to connect to other people who want to be a part of a community who maybe thinks of life and death in these terms. And so that is a way of saying, this is why it matters that you did that. The fact that we have these numbers that mean nothing in the great grand scale scheme of infinity in this universe and also we're together right now the meaning of life is each other so why not make sure that we show up and somehow connect each other to the things that matter the things that help us through the things that help keep us in a fresh healthy perspective and so thank you all of you who have taken the time to listen to this show, send it out to your community. For those of you that have rated and reviewed the show on whatever podcast app you use, know that it is helping us connect to more community. That is definitively true. That's worthwhile. And we're all going to die eventually. So you know what? No sweat if you haven't done it. <laughs> and if you haven't done it yet, just do it. I mean, does it matter enough not to? Wouldn't it be worthwhile taking the five seconds out of your time right now while I'm blathering on and on to go into your app, scroll down to where there's a write a review or your stars and just click a star, write a review, and know that at least what you're doing, maybe at a minimum, is letting me know that you're out there, that you're alive, and that we're here together in this weird sci-fi magical mystical way somehow connected in this blink of an eye. I was here, you were here, and together we made a world. Images from this, um, there's this uh, show on Netflix, an animated series. I think it's called Love, Death, and Robots or something like that. Yeah, you're right. In the second season of that, there was a short, and of course, they're all shorts, animated short about a society that had achieved immortality, right? Somehow they had found a way to keep people alive forever, right? And, uh, as a result, since no one would die, you don't want others to come in. Then you have a Malthusian problem, a population issue. So having kids was criminalized. That's right. Novelty became impossible. It was just the banal familiar 
just circulating. And then this world-weary cop, whose work is it is to fish out, it is to fish out, you know, the criminal underbellies of the city where people are still reproducing, just finds, to cut the long story short, he finds salvation in dying eventually, right? The last scene is fade to black. He finally sighs a sigh of relief. There, there's something about the ways that we have engineered our lives. And I don't want to say we, as if humans did it, um, because that would be deeply anthropocentric. Or I would rather say the ways our lives have been engineered. It's in part volitional, it's in part human, but it's also more than human. We have engineered or we have been engineered to resist obstacles, to fear limitations, to think of limitations as horrible places to be in because continuity promises more experience. And because we see history as this timeline of progression um, uh, with escalating um, possibilities for pleasure, uh, we are afraid of dying. And, and I think that climate chaos is the name we give to a God whose foot is in the highway, <laughs> whose giant foot has disrupted the path between us and the shopping mall and, and is calling for us to worship. I wonder what worship looks like these days. Yeah. <laughs> it's both great that your setup on your end bio has it so that I'm going to be echoed when I talk because then it makes me mute and then really not try to interrupt you because <laughs> just like I felt during We Will Dance With Mountains, if you had a, a like not the option to to, to mute everyone, how often people would be like, yes, amen. Oh, I want, you know, just laughing and crying in response to everything. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling. The foot between me and the shopping mall. <laughs> I didn't know where that came from. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yes. Uh, and, and, and I, and I, I want to bring it back to what you said and connect to the flower, you know, the grief of the flower blossom yeah, yeah, opening. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That, which is interesting because that analogy, if I, if I can call it that maybe, um, the metaphor, um, that it is abundance. You know, that, that, that it, it seems to me no accident that this idea of us wanting more and seeking more. And so then if we could stop death and stop obstacles, then we can keep getting more, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that there's more like the death of that character, which by the way, I only watched that, that short because you brought it up in the, we will dance with mountains. I, I was like, right, I, need to right. watch this. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I gotta go watch this. But that, that the euphoria of that all he got that everything that he got in the letting go, you know, like the flowers oh, this, yeah. and grief and losses, the like, do we not know the abundance? Yes. Yes. That's available. Yes. In letting the obstacle be, yes. And letting the foot land yes. and letting the death occur, you know? Yes. Yes. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's where, where we stop is such a powerful place. And it's frightening because 
we presuppose that our bodies are these Newtonian things moving within space-time, the geometries of continuity and stoppage and, and impediments. But if we saw our bodies as migrations, as diasporic murmurations, as things that exceed the outline that we're used to, the anthropomorphic outlines that we're used to, then limitations are places of concretion, of coagulation, not of. And stoppage means something entirely different. It means reiteration. It means, it means entanglement. It means, it means Jodie Foster in the movie Contact finally flying in that spaceship and looking out the window and her face is changing with the unspeakable awe of what she's with, witnessing, witnessing, right? And she says, they should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet. She wasn't looking at continuity. She was, she was articulating limitation, boundaries, stoppage, um, something that exceeds at the same time. Yeah. Grief as a flower, brother is, you know, I, I've spoken about candomblé and santeria and some of the Afro-diasporic spiritualities that tell us that our bodies are porous and our bodies are vectors and vehicles for possession. So part of rituals of initiation in these worlds is you open yourself up to an orisha, to issue or one of many issues, one of many tricksters. And when you open yourself up, you're taken. And, you know, as you're taken, you speak to the people and you minister and you, you meet with others. It, is there something, there's something very powerful about this idea of possession that one can be taken. That is not modernity, brother. Modernity is like you're fully yours. No one has access to you. No one should have access to you. You are free. But freedom, the bur this burden of freedom, using the phrase of Sadia Hartman, this burden, this weight of freedom means I'm disconnected. I am performatively disconnected from those who are always around me. Maybe death is a midwifing of community. And maybe our fear of death is a refusal to be surrounded. Thank you for that. Uh, okay, so this is wildly hilarious. I'm thinking first, I want to go back to your kids. And, and, you know, in that moment, you talk about your daughter giving you abundance. I mean, she gave you reconnection to your dad. And again, I know this, it both was the epiphany and the receiving or reconnecting. And I know it represents like maybe even like the process of or the ongoing um, relationship with, or anyway, knowing that she offered you that at the water, she shushed you into all this <laughs> and, and a return to your dad. Um, 
I'm also thinking hilariously about Batman. Jeez, if he just had a couple kids, you know, <laughs> that, that <laughs> Batman. But um, one thing I want to, <laughs> one thing I want to acknowledge is you, you know, you said in this abundance, it's like the lineage, you know, the lineage of your fatherhood, the fatherhood lineage. I have two questions about that. I have a question that says, do you know your dad as someone when he was alive who could have answered those questions you have when you ask what to do with your children or your son? Do you know that he was that man? Or is there a way him dead now has him as a, as now a, someone who can answer those questions and, and connected to the lineage of fatherhood able to more. And partly I'm asking that is because I do believe both could be possible. So we'll see what you have to say. And I wonder about people, you know, there's a relationship I have with my mom where I, when she was alive, I don't know that I could have gone to her to say, I don't know what to do here. In truth, like, geez, the amount of stuff I lived through growing up in that household, incredible, my mother, in, in what she did to take care of me and my sister and deal with my dad, who was not really, you know, he was a problem more than he was any good to the family. So, so I want to acknowledge my love and gratitude for her keeping me alive, you know, getting me here, having me in the world like I am, you know, crediting her for that and knowing I don't know that I could go to her if she was still living based on how I related to her alive. And I know other people might hear that too and say, boy, I wish that my dad or mom was that kind of person, but they're not, I'm not sure what, what's, and you could be like, don't know, not sure we can go that direction, but I'm wondering no, if anything. Yeah. Mother, you're exactly, this is very in, in, in words. The noticing that is, powerful because I'm asking myself if I would have gone to my dad, you know, for that kind of, my dad was a gentle, joyful place. He felt more like a place than a human. He was, um, he was open and he was wise and he was, he was, um, but I find he, I think of him more, I remember him as more brilliant than wise, if I could make that connection. Um, and, I, and he had many flaws, of course. And, and think, can you, can you real quick bio, can you, if you, you know, can you tell me what brilliant is and what wise is? Hmm. I mean, brilliance to me seems to be the skillful, navigational competence that allows us to um, move swiftly, you know, with ease through landscapes that are not always conveniently um, available, right? Wisdom feels like an impediment. Wisdom is a disruption of movement, right? It's like... Um, it's like a computer programmed to produce certain 
chatbot, what's it called? Chat GPT, right? It's chat GPT. It's brilliant, right? It can mimic, or as people say, it mimic intelligence. I think it's intelligent. I don't think intelligence is in the, in my metaphysics of intelligence, it doesn't necessarily have to be artificial to climb the ladder to natural intelligence. I think, um, the, the algorithm speaks, it's intelligent. Um, but is it wise? Can artificial intelligence be wise? I think wisdom is a glitch. Like when ChatGPT doesn't know what to say, that's wisdom. So wisdom isn't necessarily instrumental to some end. Wisdom is when we, we don't exactly know where to go. Wisdom is death. Wisdom is the cosmic shush. Right. So, yeah. Um, so I was saying that meeting my dad, <clears throat> I don't know that I, I don't know that I would also have, have done, had that relationship with him that would have sought advice with regards to being a sensuously available parent for my children. I don't know. But maybe we are making doing some operations here. Like, like there's a new kind of relationship that is available when our parents are missing or absent. Right? We can, maybe we're releasing them away from the traps of being identified. There's a generous move or gesture there. Like, we are allocating to them things that we may not have known them by, right? It's like we're releasing them, so to speak. And not many people might think of it this way, like release. Many people might hold the wounding of being in those kinds of relationships, parenting relationships, long enough to not see the generosity in, that death provides. But... But, but maybe there's something there. I'm not sure what we're doing. I'm not sure what archetypes we are playing with. I'm not sure what intelligences are speaking through us, but there's something about it that, there's something, there's something reassuring to me about saying, Daddy, could you help me here? Even though if you were embodied, he isn't, death is not disembodiment. But death is repair pairing again with other bodies. Um, and maybe in his, in the way that my memory restores him to me, to my, to my mind day and night and in my dreams, maybe he wouldn't have been able to respond. And has he responded though? Did you say, say that again? Ha has he responded though? I think his response is a non-response, if that makes sense. And this is not just semantics. There, there is the, uh, you know that passage? I, I've used this often when I speak and teach. The, when, when Job cries out to God and says, why aren't you helping? I've been good. I've lived by the book. And you just take my kids and my wives and my everything and my cattle away from me. And God is like, so you want to have a donut? 
<laughs> the logic of what he says is basically donuts. It's it's it makes no sense whatsoever. It's like he doesn't address the man's lamentation. He basically changes the subject. Imagine a god changing the subject and saying, "So, um, movie, movie, movie," you know. And 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 that non-response is wiser than we think. Because it releases, you know, I've all, I've often said that what's more, what's wiser than an answer to a question? It's bewilderment. The bewildering response is wiser than the correct answer. And because it releases from the economy of relations that makes those things competent or coherent and it invites playfulness. So my father is non-responding eloquently. Yes. Yeah, awe, awe doesn't seem far off from bewilderment. You know, thinking of, of Jodie Foster's face with those her eyes, her tears, you know, the joy, the overwhelm, even fear. Because I feel like she, you know, she somehow that moment captures also some fear too. You know? You've watched the movie, right? More than once. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, thank you for that. The, the very obvious, for me, the very obvious last place to go is the biggest question that would take the most time. It's your question. It's not your question. You, you gave it to us through some of your writing. And I actually was so struck by it that I, I, I quoted it with some of the language from I coronavirus. Um, and I think it's in that piece actually. Okay. And the, and what you say is, and this is, you could be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it does. But the quote is death needs a new cosmology. And, and I think it's out of this, the, the wording just to, I, you know, I know I'm, I'm bringing up writing like I was just with it. You haven't revisited some of these words, maybe since you shared them. Are the, It's talking about newly discovered viruses, right? Are they dead? Are they alive? Can we consider other ways of framing the question? Maybe viruses like earthly researchers constantly invite us to revisit our notions of life. Maybe they are saying death needs a new cosmology. You'd be like, yeah, read the essay, <laughs> put it in the show notes, <laughs> you know? Um, but also I'm wondering about ways that it connects and maybe is what, what some of what we've been speaking to is the new cosmology or at least mm -hmm. a more question towards it. Yeah, it's, I mean, death needing, I'm going to write that down. I, I know I wrote it down already in the essay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fio's got a new essay coming out. It's the yeah. same thing as last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, death needs a new cosmology, I think. Uh, in the Afrocene, pardon me, everyone, brother. Um, and I'm going to keep this in too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it just it just feels it feels like the the bewildering. These are some of the ideas that I haven't visited in the bewildering response. Yeah, 
Death needs a new cosmology. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's really wonderful too to feel what I felt already and see it in you, which is writing. And this is like a whole nother tangent, but I just want to acknowledge it. And if there's time to touch on it, great. But I just want to acknowledge and say I'm, I'm witnessing the, your conversation with yourself, <laughs> you know, like your conversation, like the, these questions, especially, mm-hmm. but, but you're as a writer, the way you are a writer, the way you are in the world with your work and teaching mm-hmm. that it's, it's wonderful to see you almost like it's humbling and and seems humble to me to have a response to your writing. That's like, Oh yes, this is the conversation (laughs) I'm still in, (laughs) you know, like what do I have to say to myself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is exactly it, brother. My wise brother. Thank you. Thank you. Mm, Yeah. Death needing a new cosmology. I'm I'm, I'm I'm just short of words and I, I don't even I, I feel I don't even want to touch that right it's I mean we, we've been we're tracing here what we're doing is we're tracing together we are tentatively experimentally playfully tracing out new landscapes soundscapes and I'm not even sure where to go. Perfect. I don't know either. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I honestly bio, I, I feel the same way and I just feel so like, you know, that feeling of I could talk to someone for the rest of time slash everything that's been, (laughs) everything that's needed has been said. Yes. Yes. That's yes. where I'm at. So honestly, unless you, unless there is a, like, I don't know where to go with that, but I do want to talk about this. Then I want to make a little moment for that. Um, you know, like thinking of what we've just shared, is there more that you, that isn't the continuation or answer to like death as a new cosmology? Maybe there is something else still connected to what we've shared already that you do want to articulate before mm-hmm. we go. Maybe one of the reasons why death needs a new cosmology is I, I want to honor the trickster issue, the Yoruba trickster, whose work is speculative and fictional, therefore real and factual and, and more than human and bleeding through edges blurring the lines between binaries and dichotomies and doing things that that are potentially emancipatory but also dangerous and i'm thinking about um that vessel of death that was the slave ship grammatical error there that is the slave ship because the slave ship hasn't disappeared. It's just become different. That vessel of death and dying, right? And how the capture of 
economy and the plantation deployed deployed bodies you know as you know these prosthetic tools for the glorification of white modernity right it's like a field this is where you work and then this is where you nourish the engines that produce transcendence of course you know the things that i say about whiteness that whiteness isn't white bodies whiteness also caught white identified bodies apart away from the milk of their indigeneity right just like it did to captured black bodies black identified bodies um and i'm now thinking of the 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 way that there is a kind of dying or death that we perform when we think we're living right it's no like i'm thinking of those people working the grounds i'm thinking about where did it stop where did the vessel of should we measure life and death along the very strict and narrow lines of heartbeat and biological lines or is is death so promiscuous that it doesn't fit neatly into those lines right this what the virus says to like biologists are really don't know how to define the most fundamental um they don't know what life is we don't know what life is our fundamental definitions of it are constantly changing as something else pops up and we're like okay let's redraw the line but we don't exactly know what life is you know not to even speak of knowing what death is doing right so i'm thinking of that capture the logic of capture as a form of death and 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 even that form of death you know lively bodies are you know performances of death and the zombie the zombie now becomes this figuration this blurring the lines between death and living right that was limited to the plantation the zombie as a black form of knowing that we're dead but we're also alive and maybe this is the cosmology that I'm gesturing at not one cosmology not a final articulation but at least the logic of it that that death spills death is spillage there is a way that those of us gestating in the city you know going about our lives in this terrifying cyclical patterns you know performing this pheromonic uh, imperatives of doing the same things over and over again and not in a way that feels life sustaining but in a way that feels exhausting like you're in a death spiral right why do they call that ant circularity that when they are trapped in their fer- pheromones you know they call it a death spiral it's a death spiral because they eventually get exhausted from following each other's pheromones and they die 
right? But but it's a very lively thing, you see. They're very lively in their death spiraling. I wonder if if the thing that we fear the most isn't outside, like an invading extraterrestrial spaceship, but it's what we are performing. Maybe that's what the trickster is blurring, that we're dead. There's a kind of stockness and deadness that is modernity's burden, that we're dead in being impervious to feeling. We're dead in thinking of, of food as these chemical consistencies that come in cans, you know, and off shelves. We're dead in the ways that we're resisting the limitations and the shushing and the intelligence of rivers were dead and maybe an autistic breakthrough an autistic monstrous errancy such as what what my son is performing in falling apart every time he looks at my face or looks into an eye or feeling so deeply maybe that's how things get enthused maybe death uh, death's cosmology where death and life and not twins apart but are how bodies are reshaped maybe this this autistic opening is is ref, is a refusal to be dead you know maybe we should be opening asylums for the sane you know, maybe maybe there is thing that we're afraid of is not outside we're performing it right now so what would it take to come alive we need to be infected by something that passes through we need my son who happens to also be my father yeah gratitude to bio for saying yes to being on our show. If you want to find out more about bio, go to bioacamalafe.net. Easiest way to do that is just go into our show notes. I'm going to avoid trying to spell the name. I could do it right, but I just don't know that you want to listen to me spell it out for you. So just go into the show notes, bioacamalafe.net. And there's going to be another We Will Dance With Mountains course offered in September of this year. So you can go to a website specific for that called course.bioacamalafe.net. And again, I'll put that in the show notes too. Those two ways, super easy ways to connect to bio and what he's up to, uh, especially his website has all the writings, a lot of which were mentioned in this episode. So I think that's all. Nick, did I, did I forget anything? You did everything great. Great. You're doing great. Great. Thanks. I do need the acknowledgement, Nick, and thanks for being good about <laughs> making moments to say, hey, uh, good job. Um, yeah. And I feel the same way about you. Thank you for the good work on this episode. This one feels very special. Yeah. Good job getting him on the show and having a conversation with him like as a peer 
I, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, that was kind of wild. <clears throat> I know you and I have talked about that a little bit, but I think there's a way after all these years, there's still a, I'm having bio on the show. And so somehow it's still a version of going to be a part of bio's course or reading bio's work. And it did feel like we both kind of had this experience of being together like peers and in this conversation that isn't planned and wasn't very academic and was very feeling led and, and really accented by, I think his ability to lean in and probably anywhere be present in the current moment fully and wholly, but accented by that initial invitation to say, this could be all we have left. This is, this could be the last thing we have on, on earth. How could this be, you know, be something that matters and is something we need. And, um, it feels like heavy handed and dramatic. I mean, even the opening of this, (laughs) this episode, I just kind of was thinking about getting the listener in, in that way. And, and it's funny to say, like, listen to this episode from the, from the place of maybe you'll be dead in two hours, which is a total, it's totally true. And that's a lot, um, to hold and maybe would make people turn off a podcast. Cause it's like, wow, you're right. I could be, boy, I'm going to go do something. I'm going to do something else with my time. Um, but he leaned in and it felt really good to like be together in that way. Yeah. It's an invitation to presence, which is a wonderful invitation. Yeah, I think so. Um, honestly, I am depleted, Nick. I just feel like <laughs> it's great. Good to connect. To well, you. <laughs> well, that was, that's been our show, folks. It, that's what it feels like. It feels like it's enough. It's enough to say, Nick, I love you. I'm grateful for you. Um, what if we die in 10 minutes? There's nothing more important than communicating that and yeah. maybe leaving it there. So I think that might be all I want to do. That's fair. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there. Thanks, Nick. Mm-hmm. And thanks, listeners. We love you too. Thanks for all the support. I would just say, last thing, if this episode moved you or meant something to you or cracked you open or blew your head wide open, um, you know, share it with somebody. Share it with someone in your life that you know this will matter to them. And know that like that's enough and that we would be so glad for that. And it's a way of of a continued way of growing our connectivity to new community. Um, but first of all, most importantly, thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. We're so glad to be in your ear. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.